First Peter chapter 4. Love what God is doing right now in our student ministries. He's really just moving in a very powerful way. Every Thursday night, people are getting saved, and uh, it's just been really awesome. But today, we continue our study in First Peter, and we're coming to the home stretch. Today, we're going to finish chapter 4. I'm going to pick it up in verse 12, so if you would follow along as I read. Beloved, everybody say beloved. Do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Pause there and give me your attention. This was an ad that appeared on Facebook. It was a posting about a missing dog. It read, lost dog with three legs, blind in its left eye, missing its right ear, has a broken tail. Answers to the name of Lucky. (laughs) I think sometimes we can feel about as lucky when we are going through a time of difficulty or when we're going through some tragedy. I know for me, as a pastor, one of the most difficult things I face is sitting down with somebody in our church family who's going through a tragedy, that's going through a real difficult time. And so often when I'm in that type of setting, I I think to myself, I don't verbalize it out loud usually, but I think to myself, why, Lord? Why, why are they going through such a difficult time? I mean, what they're telling me, th- this is hard. Lord, why? Now, I know the answer to those questions theologically. In fact, we've studied it. We've talked about it already in our study of First Peter. Back in chapter 1, we saw where Peter was talking about suffering, and he really gave us there the purpose of suffering. Why we go through it is that God uses it to purify us. And he used the analogy of like when the goldsmith is putting the gold into the fire, that what happens? The gold is purified by the fire, that in the fire, all of the impurities rise to the surface and the goldsmith will scrape off the impurities and he puts the gold back in the fire until it's purified. How does he know when it's purified? When he can see his face in the reflection. 
And we talked about there in our first couple of studies about how God uses trials, He uses difficulty, He uses suffering in order to purify us. James taught something similar in James chapter 1, verse 2, when he said, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. So he's telling us that our trials, our suffering, our difficulty is meant to produce something in us, to produce patience. And then he says this, but let patience, there's a choice there, let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. But although we understand the purpose of suffering theologically, it's hard when you're going through it, isn't it? To embrace that. It's hard to grab a hold of that. Or when someone you love is going through a difficulty, now, back in chapter 1, Peter dealt with suffering in more of a general sense. But here in our passage today in chapter 4, he's dealing with the subject of suffering in a much more specific sense because he's talking about when we suffer for following Christ. When we suffer as Christians, as those who are naming the name of God. In fact, look at verse 14. He says, if you are reproached for the name of Christ... Blessed are you. The word reproach there means to be ridiculed or to be insulted. And you know what? That's becoming much more revelant, or, yeah, revelant, much more of a reality <laughs> in our world today. You know, there was a time when some pastors here in the States, when they would come to this passage, they would deal with the subject of suffering in much more of a general sense, and I think oftentimes not really teaching what Peter's talking about here. But we're living in a day and age now where our world is becoming much more hostile to the things of God, much more antagonistic against the people of God. And so what Peter was writing to these guys almost 2,000 years ago is becoming much more of a reality in our day and age. I mean, you can bank on this. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ today, if you are committed to live by what the Bible says you can count on this, you will suffer some form of reproach for the name of Christ. And I think it's only going to get worse. Today, as we unpack this message, Peter gives us five directives of how to respond to suffering when we suffer as a Jesus follower. If you're taking notes, the first directive we see in verse 12, Peter says, don't be surprised when suffering comes your way. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Notice that word, beloved. Everybody say, beloved. Isn't that a beautiful word? It's a word that speaks of affection. It means much loved. I point that out because Peter's not writing to an audience here. He's writing to a flock. He's writing as a pastor. He's writing to people that, that he had loved, that he loved, that he, that he did life with, that he had touched, and he'd been touched by them, and he loves them. And so he calls them beloved here, but more so than Peter loving them, God loves them. And he says to them, beloved, don't think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you. Don't think it to be weird. Don't think of it as a bizarre or unusual thing when you suffer. Because it's actually the norm. 
for being a follower of Jesus Christ. Notice the phrase fiery trial. You know, back in chapter 1, he talked about the fire, as I mentioned, and the idea of being put into the fire, and we use the analogy there of the goldsmith. But I think Peter has something more specific on his mind here in chapter 4. Because most scholars believe that 1 Peter was written in A.D. 64, and there was something very significant that happened in A.D. 64 in the Roman Empire. Those of you who are history buffs, you know that for nine weeks, beginning on July 16th of A.D. 64, Rome burned. And most people believe that it was the emperor's fault, that it was actually Caesar himself who started the fires. You see, Caesar had a passion for building. And he was in a place where he was sort of just, he didn't like the old city of Rome. He wanted to rebuild it. He wanted to renew it. And so he set it on fire. He was burning down his city. And it was interesting, as Rome burned, those who were living in that old part of the city who were losing their homes and and some of them lost their loved ones they became enraged and they turned against Nero to the point where it was an almost all-out revolt and Caesar knew that he needed to do something he needed a scapegoat he needed somebody to blame guess who he chose the Christians He said, let's blame it on the Christians. No one likes them anyway. And so that's exactly what he did. He said, the Christians, they're the ones who started the fire. In order to display his anger against the Christians, he took Christians and he put them, fastened them to poles in his garden, covered them with pitch and lit lit them on fire while they were still alive. And he rode through his garden on horseback, naked, screaming at the top of his lungs. And that really began a 200-year reign of terror against Christians in the Roman Empire. But it all started in A.D. 64, the very same time that Peter was penning this letter. And so most people believe that this is the fiery trial that he's talking about. And Peter says, hey guys, don't think it's strange. Don't be surprised when you are reproached, when you're going through the fiery trial for following Jesus. Why would he say that? To not be surprised, because Jesus said the same thing. Jesus told his disciples, he said, don't be surprised when the world hates you, because it hated me. Don't be surprised when the world doesn't like you, because it doesn't like me. And the apostle John tells us why that is in John chapter 3 and verse 19. He says, and this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. Jesus was saying, look, the world, when you're walking in the light, when you're following Jesus, those who are in darkness, they're not going to like you because your very life can expose their evil deeds. Have you ever had this happen? You walk into a room and the conversation in the room stops. You ever had that happen? Everybody's kind of looking at you. It's kind of awkward. Or you walk into the room and everybody puts their cell phones down or turns them off. Or you walk in the room and everybody starts to scatter because something was going on in that room that wasn't godly, that wasn't righteous, that wasn't good. And your very presence made everybody uncomfortable. Conversation stops. 
They're staring at you like, here's the killjoy. Why did you have to ruin the party, you know? Jesus says, hey, that's going to happen. That's what happens when light comes into darkness. It's like when, when you walk into a dark room and someone's sleeping and you turn on the light. It's annoying to them. And Jesus said, that's what your life is going to be like. As you're walking in the light, as you're following me, your life is going to have that type of an effect on some people for those who are in the darkness. You know, we live today in what's called the cancel culture. And people have a tendency to assume today that they know what we stand for as followers of Christ. And today, Christians can get kind of labeled and put in this box that we're all homophobic, that we're racist, that we're all white-wing political fanatics, that that's kind of the box that they're wanting to put Christians in today. And the tension and the hostility against followers of Jesus is now growing in our country. It's really growing around the world. And so what Peter said to these believers back in AD 64 is becoming much more relevant. That's the word I was looking for. (laughs) For us today, living in our day and age. So, So he says, don't be surprised. Don't think it's strange when you are reproached for following Jesus. They didn't like me, and they're not going to like you. So that's his first directive here, is to not be surprised. His second directive is to rejoice. Look at verse 13. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of the Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And on their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. Peter says, rejoice. Everybody say rejoice. How does that hit your ears? I want you to think about you're these guys. You're, you're seeing friends getting tied to poles, covered with pitch, and lit on fire. You're seeing people lose their lives, get run out of their homes, lose their businesses. And Peter says, rejoice with exceeding joy. I think we, we would think, Peter, have you lost your mind? What are you talking about? Now, back in pa- chapter 1, Peter was focused on the purpose of our suffering. Here in chapter 4, he's focused on the outcome. And there's two things that he tells us. Why we can rejoice is we know the outcome. We know what the suffering does. And the first thing he tells us is that it brings us into a deeper union with Christ. He says, when we are suffering from being a follower of Christ, we are literally a partaker in his suffering. And that word partaker, we get our our English word partnership from it. It speaks of a union. And this is the idea when we are being persecuted, when we are suffering for the name of Christ, when we're being ridiculed and insulted because we're followers of Jesus, it brings us into a deeper union with the Lord that we experience an aspect of God's presence and power that we would not normally experience. That's the idea. You know, sometimes I hear Christians say something like this when they, they hear of the atrocities happening in other countries. People being beheaded for being a Christian. 
people losing their lives. You know, that still does happen today. If you're unaware of that, look at the, up the website, not right now, but later, Voice of the Martyrs. There's still persecution, heavy persecution, happening all over the world of, of Christians. And I know Christians today, they'll, they'll read about that, they'll hear, hear about that, and they'll think, you know, man, if that happened here, I don't know if I could make it. I don't know if I could stand. But I believe God gives a special grace to us. He gives a special grace to true followers of Jesus Christ when we find ourselves in that type of situation. I'm reminded of the story of Corey Ten Boom, whose family was hiding Jews when, during the time when Hitler was running Nazi Germany and there was you know, great persecution happening against the Jewish people and anybody who was helping him, they were dragged off and put in the you know, concentration camps and brutally killed. And I remember that Corey Ten Boom was thinking to herself, man, if I get arrested, I don't know if I'm going to be able to make it. I don't know if I'm going to be able to, to stand. And then she reflected upon something that her father told her when she was a little girl. And he told her this. He said, Corey, when we're going on a trip, when do I give you the ticket for the train? Do I give it to you a month ahead of time? And she said, no. Do I give it to you a week ahead of time? And she said, no. When do I give it to you? On the day. And it reminded her. It was God speaking to her. Corey, listen, when you find yourself in that situation, I'm going to be with you. Just like Jesus was in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he will be in the midst of the fire with us, and he'll help us through that time. And so this is the first thing that Peter wants us to rejoice because the suffering brings us into this deeper partnership and union and relationship with Jesus. You experience the same way Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did, the way Corey Ten Boom did, the way others have. You experience his presence and power in a way like you have haven't experienced before but reason number two is because you share in his glory look at verse 14 again he says if you are reproached for the name of christ blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of god rest upon you and the idea of it resting upon you here is that it rests upon you like a mantle like a badge of honor, his glory rests upon you. It's just his glory rests upon your life and his presence, it rests upon your life. And I think Peter has in mind here what he heard Jesus teach in Matthew chapter five in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said this, blessed are you when others revile and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus says, hey, when you're getting persecuted, when you're suffering for my name's sake, great is your reward in heaven. There is a glory, in other words, that rests upon you now that you're going to experience then. So his first directive is that we should rejoice, not be surprised when we encounter suffering for following Jesus. His second directive is that we should rejoice. His third directive is that we should keep your suffering pure. Look at verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Now, don't you find it interesting that he mentions... In the same sentence with murderers, thieves, and evildoers, he mentions busybodies. Isn't that kind of ironic? 
Why would he put those in the same sentence? And here's why they do as much damage. You see, a busybody might not kill somebody literally, but they can kill the reputation. They might not steal from somebody literally, but they can steal their dignity. And it's evil in the sight of the Lord. That's why in Proverbs chapter 6, the Lord said, Hey, there's, there's six things that I hate, seven that are an abomination to me. And the last thing on the list is he who sows discord among the brethren. Now, what do I mean here by keep your suffering pure? When you suffer for the name of Christ, this is the idea, don't retaliate. Don't seek to retaliate. Here's what this would mean to the people in the first century reading Peter's letter. Peter would be saying to them, you Christians who are suffering for the name of Christ in the Roman Empire and they're confiscating your property, don't become thieves. Don't go to try and steal from somebody else. You Christians who are suffering here in the Roman Empire and, and they're actually taking you know, the lives of people that, that you love, don't become violent by murdering them. Don't retaliate. Because you see, that's the temptation that all of us face. When someone is treating us poorly, we want revenge, right? An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. That's how we think. I'm not going to turn the other cheek. I'm going to bash you in your cheek. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to break your nose, you know? I mean, that, that's our mentality. That's how our flesh reacts. But Peter says, don't do that because vengeance is mine, says the Lord. So you entrust your life to him. You entrust your reputation to him. You entrust your livelihood to him. You entrust your heart to him. You let God be your defense. Look at verse 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. Listen. If you respond to reproach with retaliation, you will be ashamed. You'll be bummed out. You'll be like, gosh, I can't believe I broke that guy's nose. You know, what was I thinking? You know, that, that's, you're going to be ashamed because you weren't representing Christ. You'll be ashamed because what you did was actually the opposite of what Jesus would do. You're going to be ashamed, but if you resist that temptation to retaliate, God will be glorified in that situation and through your life. I love the way the ESV puts verse 16, though. I think it sheds kind of some other light on what Peter's saying here. In the ESV, it says, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. I think the ESV is on to something here when it says, and let him glorify God in that name, that Peter is suggesting that that suffering actually reinforces our identity, that we have taken his name, that we've become a part of him. And most of you ladies here who are married, when you got married, you took your husband's last name, right? You joined yourself to him. Some of you wrestled with that because your last name was a lot better than his. And <laughs> his was harder to pronounce. And, and, but you took that because you were identifying yourself. I'm becoming a part of this family. That's the idea. Our suffering brings us into this identity that, hey, I'm not afraid to name myself with the name Jesus. To say, yeah, I'm a Christian. You know, in, in the book of Acts, when the, the name Christian was first given, 
I think it's right around Acts chapter 16, that it was actually used in a derogatory way. The name Christian means little Christ. And that was the idea. When they looked at the followers of Jesus, they were thinking, you know, these guys, these people remind us of that Jesus character that we didn't like, that we killed. They're, they're like little Christ. And so they called them Christians, but it was a derogatory name. But for us, that might be the way the world looks at it. Oh, those Jesus freaks. But for us, it's a badge of honor. To be named, like the greatest thing that anybody could say about you is that you remind them of Jesus. That's the best thing. Like they said of Peter and John, you know, we could tell that they were uneducated, untrained men, but we could tell they had been with Jesus. They're like that Jesus guy. That's the greatest thing that someone could say about us. And so it's this idea that we're glorying in the fact that we're connected to him. We find our identity in him. I glory in that name no matter what anyone else says. And I love the way the New Living Translation puts verse 16. It says, But it is no shame to suffer for being a Christian. Praise God for the privilege of being called by his name. So the third directive that Peter gives us here is that we would suffer purely. Keep your suffering pure. The fourth directive is consider the judgment of God. Look at verse 17. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and sinner appear? Now, the word that's used here for the word judgment is not judgment in the way of condemnation. Because if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are not condemned. The Bible says that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You are not condemned, you are not judged, because Jesus was already judged on your behalf. That's what happened at the cross. He went to the cross and hung on the cross and took the pain and took the punishment and took the wrath that all of us deserve because of our sin. And so God has already judged his son. And so he's not going to judge you in that way of condemnation because he doesn't practice double jeopardy. And the word that Peter uses here for judgment actually speaks of discipline. Discipline begins at the house of God. See, the Bible says, whom the Lord loves, he chastens, he disciplines. God disciplines his kids. In the same way, I don't discipline your kids. I wanted to sometimes. <laughs> but I don't, I don't discipline your kids God disciplines his kids. How many of you are parents here? How many of you parents have disciplined your kids before? Okay. Now, do you discipline them to hurt them? No. You discipline them to correct them, to change them, to mold them, to shape them. 
And God says, hey, those whom I love, those who are mine, I discipline them for the very same reason because I want to change them and I want to mold them and I want to shape them. I want to refine them because God is committed to the work that he has started in you. And so he's not going to just let you go your way when you're acting up or when you're getting off course. He's going to come alongside to discipline you, to correct you. Why does discipline begin with the house of God? Because we have a role to play in God's mission, in God's plan. And when we're living in an unrighteous way, it ruins our witness. It ruins our purpose. Now, let me just say this. If you're here today and you are living in rebellion and you are not being disciplined by God, that means one of two things. It means, number one, possibly you're not a child of God. You might profess the name of Christ, but in reality, you've never really truly given your heart to him. And I want to encourage you, if that's the case, that you would do that today. But the reason why you're not being disciplined is because you're not his kid. And so he's not going to discipline you. He's just letting you kind of run your course, hoping you come to your senses. But another reason why... You might not be disciplined right now if you're living in rebellion. is because God's being gracious with you. He's being patient with you. He's hoping like the prodigal son that you'll come to the end of yourself and you'll turn back to him. She'll give your heart to him that you'll wake up and see what the heck am I doing with my life? And that's the reason why he's waiting. Here, here's the thing. Here's the reason why I say this. Sometimes people think, hey, you know, I'm, I'm in sin right now, and God's not doing anything. He must approve. No, that's the wrong message, wrong idea. Could mean you're not saved, but it also could mean he's just being patient with you. He's just being gracious with you because whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Sometimes the discipline comes by way of consequences. The Bible says if we sow to the flesh, we're going to reap destruction. You reap what you sow. But sometimes it comes by divine punishment. Think of Jonah. Jonah was running from what God had called him to. God wanted him to go to the city of Nineveh and preach to it. Jonah said, I don't want to do that. So he ran in the opposite direction. And what did God do? He pursued him. And I love that. There were other prophets on the scene that he could have called to say, Jonah's a idiot. You know, hey, Jeremiah, will you go down to Nineveh for me? But what does God do? He pursues, he chases after Jonah because that's the heart of a parent. No, I want what is best for you. And Jonah, I want you to experience something and see something of my grace and my power. So I'm going to pursue you. But he disciplined him by sending a storm that hit the boat that he was on. And that teaches us there that oftentimes discipline can have collateral damage because all of the other, the sailors that were on the boat, they were affected by the discipline coming upon Jonah. And then they throw him overboard and God has a fish, a big fish come that swallows him up. Later, bars him on the beach when he you know, finally says, okay, I've had enough, God, I'll, I'll do it, you know, I'll go. And the fish goes and bars Jonah up on the beach and Jonah goes to Nineveh and you know the rest of that story. If you don't, read the book of Jonah. It's an amazing story. But this whole section really magnifies something that we need to pay attention to. And it magnifies for us the holiness of God. That he doesn't wink at sin. That he doesn't just let it go by. He wouldn't be a just judge if he did that. We would like that, but that wouldn't be just. 
He's a just judge, and so he deals with sin. But get this, the way that God chose to deal with the sin problem was sending his son to come, leave heaven, come to this earth so that he could go to the cross and pay the price for all of our sins, to take the punishment that we deserved. And that's what Peter means here in verse 18 when he says that we are scarcely saved. You see, we are only saved by the grace of God. It's not our efforts. It's not our works. It was God's grace and forgiveness and mercy that he said, I'm going to do something for these people that they can't do for themselves. I'm going to send my son. He's going to die in their place. He's going to pay the price for their sins. And when we put our faith in what Jesus Christ did, that we become his sons and his daughters. We're scarcely saved. In other words, there's no other way. You can't be saved by your good works. Some people think that. Hey, I'm going to get to heaven. How come? God's just going to weigh out my good and my bad, and my good far outweighs my bad, so I'm going to make it. No, no, no. The Bible says that we've all sinned. We've all missed the mark. We all have sinned and need a Savior. God is not like Santa Claus, you know, checking to see who's naughty and nice. He says, you're all naughty, but I'm nice. And that's why I sent my son. And those who embrace that, those who put their faith in what Jesus did, we receive of his grace. We become his sons and daughters. But those who reject that end up being separated from God in a place of torment for all of eternity. So Peter's fourth directive here is that we consider the discipline of God, that we take it seriously. The fifth directive and final one is that we're to rest in God and keep working. Look at verse 19. Therefore, to those who suffer according to the will of God, pause there for just a moment, underline that phrase, suffer according to the will of God. Why do I point that out? Because some of you have been told that suffering is never a part of the will of God. That God always wants his children to be healthy and wealthy and always smiling. That to be blessed means you have no problems and only good things are happening to you. That is not only true, that is not in the Bible. If that were true, you'd have to rip this page out of your Bible. If that was true, you'd have to rip John 16 out of your Bible because Jesus said this in John chapter 16. He says, in this world, you will have tribulation. Not you might, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. Paul said that this is true. This is a fact that those who choose to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. In other words, it comes with the territory of being a follower of Jesus Christ. So he says here in verse 19, Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. The word commit here is a banking term that means to deposit something for safekeeping. This is what we're depositing, our hearts. We're depositing our trust. When you find yourself in a place where you're saying, man, I don't understand what is happening to me right now. I don't understand what's going on in the world around me. Or this is so hard. Or this is painful. And I don't get it. I want answers and they're not coming. So what I need to do, what you need to do in that moment is deposit my trust in God's bank. That's the picture. 
And here's the truth. When you deposit your trust in God's bank, you will get dividends of blessings in your account. In other words, He won't let anything you deposit go to waste. But every bit of trust that you deposit will be rewarded. So deposit your trust in God, in who He is, and His faithfulness, and keep working. Keep doing good, Peter says. Keep shining. Keep serving. Keep living for Jesus. Believing what the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, that we are more than conquerors through Him who loves us. Amen? Now, as we wrap up our time today, we are going to celebrate communion And then we're going to celebrate with some people who are being baptized. I'm going to have the worship team come back up at this time. But in communion, we are remembering what Jesus did for us. We're remembering. You should have received one of these little packets that has the juice and the cracker all in one there. You can begin to open those right now if you'd like. But we're remembering... That Jesus took the wrath upon himself that all of us deserved. We're remembering that his body was given. That the pain, the punishment that we deserved was, was actually put upon Jesus when he was there upon the cross. That his body bore the pain and the punishment that was meant for us. And we're also remembering That when his blood was shed, that it was shed for our redemption. To bring us into the family of God. To cleanse us. That the Bible says when Jesus was on the cross, all of our sin was transferred to him. So that all of his righteousness could be transferred to you. Isn't it amazing to think about church? That when God looks at you today, he sees you in the righteousness of Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? He sees you in his son. And so as we celebrate communion, we're remembering that. We're remembering what what Jesus did for us. But, But we're also, as we celebrate communion today, it's also part of our identifying ourselves with the identity and the union of Jesus. That we're naming his name. That we're taking his name upon ourselves. You see, the Bible says that you and I, that that the Christians, followers of Christ, that we're his bride. We're taking on his name. We're saying, hey, I'm a Christian. I belong to him. And you know what's awesome? The Bible says that Jesus is not ashamed of us. He's not ashamed to link himself with us, to call us his bride, to call us. He's not ashamed to call you and I his brothers and sisters. You know, some of you, you you had younger brothers or sisters that you were ashamed to identify yourself with, right? Like, man, I don't know that guy, you know? They're doing something stupid. You're like, I have no idea who that is. Some of you don't want to do that with your own kids. You know, you're like, "I, I don't even know that person right now, you know? That's not Jesus. Jesus is like, yeah, they're, they, they can do stupid things, but I love them. They're mine. He identifies himself with us. 
And this is our way of identifying ourselves with him. Communion in, in, in some ways is sort of like when a married couple is renewing their vows to one another. And Jesus has renewed his vow to us. He constantly, it's part of the new covenant that, that he has done this work, that he says, it's finished. We take the cup and he says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. And you know, the old covenant said, do this and live. Do these things, follow these sets of standards and you can have right relationship with God. Jesus said, hey, this is the new covenant in my blood. In the new covenant, you know what he says? It's done, it's finished. And we rejoice in that. And so as we partake of communion today, we're also celebrating our union with Jesus. So Pete's gonna begin to lead us in a song. And as he does, I just wanna encourage you to go and, and just as, as not go but but to stay and and <laughs> part you when you feel ready as you're just in your own heart partake of the elements and then afterwards as we just continue to sing those of you who are getting baptized today i'm going to go change and you can just make your way over here to my left and our team will be waiting for you over there and and uh, just to, to meet you. And so just to, during this time, we're going to be worshiping. Don't wait. Just head over there. If you're here today and you're thinking, you know what? I didn't know there was a baptism. Or I forgot to sign up. And I really want to be baptized today. That's okay. We have time. So if you want to get baptized, you make your way over. You can get baptized as well. If you're here today and you realize, you know, I've been living in rebellion against God and, and, and I really want to get my life right with Jesus, you call out to him right now. The Bible says that those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved and call out to him and he'll touch you. He'll meet you in this moment and then make your way over here. And you can be baptized today. Baptism represents, it's symbolic of Jesus' death and resurrection and our identifying ourselves with it, with his new life, that it represents your old life being buried and your new life coming up out of the grave to now walk in that newness of life in Christ. And so that's what we're, we're doing here. As we partake of communion, we're renewing our vow. We're remembering Christ's promise to us. We're remembering his work on the cross. We're identifying ourselves with him through his death and resurrection. And we're, those who are getting baptized today are doing the same thing in another sense of just identifying themselves as being followers of Christ today. And we want to celebrate as we just spend the rest of our time this morning and just worship and celebrating in communion and with those being baptized. So let's go ahead and do that.